you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, as always, we invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Before we talk about this week's new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, we have lots of emails and comments to catch up with, so let's get right to it. First, we go to Warren, who messaged me on Facebook and wrote, How do I buy a copy of the theme music for the show? Want to use it as my cell phone ringtone? Well, Warren, thank you so much. I couldn't resist answering this email and putting in a uh, shameless plug. Uh, despite the email's lack of Oak Island content, I uh, just felt the need to answer it. Uh, what you are hearing at the top of every podcast is actually the first few seconds of a song I wrote and recorded a few years back for an album called Around the Rock. I then edited it into a little loop to use as a theme. There's only about, I don't know, six or seven seconds of actually the song that is just looped over and over again. Again, again this is just like maybe, um, I don't know. 10 seconds of a song called Live It All Again that obviously continues on well past these first few seconds here on the show. If you'd like a copy of the CD that has the song on it, feel free to send me an email. We can arrange that for you. Thanks, Warren. Not only for the kind words about the music, but also for the chance of the shameless plug here. Anyway, staying with Facebook, Mike writes, Hi, I look forward to your podcast. Love them. Thanks for the great work you do. I follow The Curse of Oak Island like a religion, watched it since the very beginning. I would say that in the beginning, the show was more credible. It felt like a real treasure hunt. Now I get the feeling that it's a soap opera. They beat around the bush quite often. For example, episode one of season eight, Gary shows off his $15,000 tunnel finder. Can he apply it to the rock formation on lot 15 to determine if there is a tunnel? Why drag this for three, four, or maybe eight episodes? So yeah, See, just like a soap opera. Things just pop out of the blue, things that didn't exist at all seven seasons ago. I feel it's all scripted, so we stay hooked on the show. Just a thought. Thank you for this great podcast. Okay, Mike, I can't give you any special insight about, uh, you know, what did you call it? This all being potentially scripted or, you know, other than to say that I've talked with multiple people, some here on this podcast, um, who have taken a small part in the filming of the show. And they all attest to uh, the, the show's genuine nature, the genuine nature of the work being done there and of the people doing it. But, you know, I say this a lot. We have to keep in mind this is a show. And it is the producer's number one job to get ratings and therefore advertising dollars. And they have certainly succeeded with that goal up until this point. So if they do things like, I don't know, play around with the timing of when things actually happened or hold fines out to the end of the season, you know, stuff like that. We need to just kind of accept it a little bit. I know that doesn't sound great, but I I just, I don't like to get too bogged down by it. Because if you do, honestly, you'll never be able to enjoy another quote unquote reality TV show ever again, because they all do this. Now, having said that, I think it is pretty obvious how the show's success has changed the treasure hunt. Yes, in the beginning, we were watching, you know, just a few guys with what was obviously a finite amount of extra cash to spend on all this, hunting for treasure, mostly in the money pit area on Oak Island. When you get right down to it, what we were watching back then wasn't 
all that unlike the work that was done decades ago by Dan Blankenship or Robert Restall or many of the other treasure hunters. But now we have this huge cast, projects all over the island, and a seemingly unending budget to perform the most intense and expansive work really ever done on the island. There's no doubt things have changed. Whether that change makes for a better show or not, <laughs> you know, that's entirely up to you as a viewer to decide. It certainly makes, certainly is a better treasure hunt now and certainly a more expansive treasure hunt. Now, with that in mind, you're 100% correct about Gary Drayton's, it was called the OKM EXP 6000. And from what I could find, it was more like $25,000. <laughs> this little tunnel finding metal detector that we saw way back in episode one. Why did we spend four episodes with archaeologists on Lot 15 digging with garden tools and toothbrushes just to tell us there's no tunnel when Gary was holding an incredibly expensive piece of gear that could have told us that in 15 minutes? Because that's not what the archaeologists were doing for one thing, but my guess is that Gary did do the work, he found nothing, and showrunners decided that just wasn't good for television. It's times like this when I tell myself, it doesn't matter how we get the information, only that we did. Thanks, Mike. Hang in there, my friend. Uh, you still enjoy the show, as you're saying here. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think this has changed much over the years. Maybe it is getting a little bit worse, but um, still the show is making up for it with all it's doing for the treasure hunt. Okay, now let's go over to some emails. The first one comes from Craig. He writes, hello from Southern California. Finally sat down to write an email. This is late, but... How were Gary and Jack running around the island before the brothers could get there? He's asking about the COVID precautions. And then he asks, what is the 1988 technology that allowed them to find non-ferrous hits at such depths? Why hasn't 30-year better technology been deployed in the same areas to find more or confirm these? I know I have plenty more thoughts, but these are good for now. Keep up the great work, Craig. And Craig, keep them coming. As the season comes along, keep them coming. These are two good questions. First, I can't really give you the answer on the Jack and Gary thing. Um, could be they just came earlier than the other guys. Well, I mean, clearly they did. And it also could be that some of this was just not filmed in the order suggested by the episodes, I think, just to sort of make it, give it some more continuity. Um, I don't have an answer for you on that one. I know Matty Blake, who people asked me about, I did reach out to him, and he told me that he did, in fact, needed, need to quarantine for two weeks on the island before he could do even his one-off preseason special episode. So I'm ready to assume that Gary and Jack really did the same thing. Now, as far as that 1988 technology you mentioned, I guess, and I think, I'm pretty sure you're referring here to the Behringer survey. Now, I only really know as much about this, the inner workings of this survey, as you do. So I reached out to Doug Kroll and asked how the survey was completed, and he answered, quote, the Behringer survey was a geophysical survey using VLF and magnetometer equipment. So essentially, what it says it detected is what you would expect that kind of equipment to be able to detect. As far as your question about why they haven't used modern technology on these, well... <laughs> Listen, Craig, let's see what happens. Perhaps this is something we will see. You know, more on this survey, this Behringer survey, is certainly to come this season. So uh, let's just hang on. It's a little too early to say they haven't done it yet. Maybe they have. Thank you so much for your email. Let's go to Mark now who asks, regarding the debate recently about the allegedly military-style item, ox cart pen, found near the ox shoes and why the cast, especially Jack, went to military right away, which was followed by Carmen Legg, seeming to confirm this interpretation. 
was reminded of a story a friend lawyer told me uh, many years ago. He was featured in a segment on 60 Minutes and was interviewed by Morley Safer. When I next saw my friend, I told him he'd done well on national TV and that I was impressed by how Safer seemed very well informed on the technical legal questions at issue. My friend shook his head, told me that what actually happened was that Safer would ask him a general question, and after my friend gave the detailed legal answer, 60 Minutes went back and had Safer re-record his questions to include all the relevant <laughs> legal terminology, thereby making Safer sound so smart that my friend the lawyer seemed to be parroting back Safer's own words when giving the answer. After that, I noticed that on 60 Minutes, the interviewer's back was usually to the camera when asking his or her questions. Call me naive. This is my roundabout way of explaining why I su suspect the, the team went to Carmen Lake first and heard his analysis, then went back and reenacted the scene where they found the item. Then relying on Leg's input, they made themselves sound incredibly insightful upon discovering the object. Which leads to the question, what do we know about how many moments on the Curse of Oak Island are reenactments? Keep up the great work, Dave. Thanks so much. Uh, this, again, from Mark. Mark, first of all, there's no way to know that. All I could do is parrot what I said to you before, which is that um, I've met many people who've been on the show. Uh, they certainly talk to a person about the integrity of the people and of the hunt. Uh, they also talk often about how, especially theorists, about how they get edited like crazy. And I've also been told many times that they'll, you know, that they'll say something in a conversation and then, you know, maybe somebody will say, hey, listen, can you do that again? We didn't get that right. Or or maybe you kind of fumbled on that. And I, we want to. So they're not interjecting. What I always hear is they're not interjecting. They're not certainly not telling anybody to say anything. None of the people who I've spoke for and I've talked to more than one who've been on the show. None of them have said, we were told to say this. They're trying to do their best to have as natural a conversation as possible. It gets edited down to, to what we see. Uh, and then maybe for camera reasons or shot reasons or whatever it might be, uh, they're asked to you know repeat what they're saying. That's it. That's the, about all I've ever heard. Uh, but Mark, your ac accusation here is duly noted. But there is really just no way to confirm or deny whether you're correct about this particular scene. But what I can tell you also is this. Gary Drayton <laughs> has been doing this for years and all over the world. When it comes to metal artifacts being dug out of the ground, I can't imagine there is much that he hasn't seen before. And I can't imagine there are too many people around who would know more than he does. I do think the show chops up the timelines. I've said that many times before. I've said it here already. But I also believe Gary knows what he's talking about. Thank you for the email, Mark. You are not alone in your thoughts here. Let me also say that. I don't think you're wrong. I just have no way of knowing, and I really don't like attacking someone's credibility without some evidence. And finally, we have another great email from our friend Peter. He really outdid himself this week. He actually wrote a couple of emails because I needed him to clarify some of what he said in his original email. Uh, so I'm going to do some creative editing of my own here and uh, put these emails together. See how that works? Sometimes you just have to do a bit of creative editing. Anyway, Peter writes, I couldn't resist trying to verify the alignment of Nolan's Cross with Versailles and Temple Mount. Very surprised to see that while it might not be perfect on the Oak Island end, as far as I can tell, maybe my source was off, it's pretty spot on in France. Attaching the photos I created using Google Earth, feel free to use elsewhere. I think you mentioned a Facebook group and a Twitter account. Okay, let me stop here for a second. As he's saying, yes, head to our Facebook and Twitter pages, at Digging Oak Island, to see these photos. 
Peter did an absolutely great job on this. And again, it proves my point from last week about how shocking it is that no one has seen this before. So after seeing these pictures, I emailed Peter back and I asked him to clarify how he did this and to point out to him that Corey Mall told me off air that this line he's showing us here leads from Versailles to Nolan's Cross, not the other way around. And had Peter plotted the line with that information in mind? So here's what Peter responded. I drew two lines from Versailles using Google Earth. I should have used different colors so this would be clear. If you look closely at Versailles, you see a little gap where the two lines almost meet. One line I drew to Oak Island near Nolan's Cross. I I did no curving myself. Google Earth did that, plotting the most direct path. Amazingly, it lined up exactly with the path at Versailles and almost right on with the axis of Nolan's Cross. The other line I drew to the mount, and again, it lined up amazingly, not only with the path at Versailles, but the line to Oak Island. If you don't know I drew two lines, you'd swear it was one continuous line. I'd agree it suggests human intention. Not only... That not only Versailles might have been built to point to Jerusalem, but that Oak Island was chosen because it followed that line. Say you tried to place across Philadelphia, just such a cross. Of course, you could plot a line to Versailles, but no way it would line with the path or road at Versailles. It's just not, it's just it's not just the orientation of Nolan's Cross; it's the location. This does not, however, prove the Templars were involved. It does, however, suggest Nolan's cross was created after those roads at Versailles were. They could predate the palace. Like a good listener to this podcast, uh, you know, I must applaud you, Peter, for that last bit there. You are 100% correct. This does not prove who, when, or why this was done. But listen, Peter, I simply cannot thank you enough for doing this. It would call I would call this the very type of sort of independent verification of the kind I was hoping for. Bravo, Peter, bravo. Anyway, holy crap. If this map is correct, we're talking about this line from Versailles to Oak Island and Nolan's Cross being insanely accurate. In my mind, and I think I said this last week, but I really believe it now, I am convinced the chances of this whole thing being just a coincidence are very, very small. No, we have to come to the conclusion now that this was done on purpose for whatever reasons. If you believe the cross was built by man, then it was built at this particular angle because it pointed toward Versailles and the Temple Mount, or at least one or the other. And if this was done before the 19th century, then the person who pulled this off is a genius of immense proportions. Folks, look at these photos Peter sent. I mean, for crying out loud, how was this done back then? Now, could this be a hoax? Meaning, and I'm just throwing out a possibility here with absolutely no proof to back it up at all, but could some treasure hunter at some point have placed these stones where they are now? Could they have created the cross because it pointed toward the Temple Mount? Uh, I suppose that's possible, but you know who would have done that? And, and why would they have kept it a secret until now? I mean, I guess, I don't know. I, mean, I guess that could have been Fred Nolan. He's the one who found the cross. But again, that's attacking the man's credibility with zero proof, and I'm, I'm just not going to do that. And honestly, really, I'm just fishing for answers here. Let's face it, this is remarkable. I continue to be blown away by it. Anyway, Peter continues, Seriously, the further they stray from the treasure, the more my interest flags. Twisting some possible connection out of flimsy evidence gets annoying. The pine tar kill seemed like a tiny operation, hardly enough to seal a major ocean vessel. 
Ox shoes don't prove much. The spot wasn't farmland. Okay, maybe the oxen were being taken to water for a drink or to lug back water or to take crops to a ship or neighbors, bring back firewood. They don't speculate about other possibilities. Okay, Peter, that is my biggest issue too, but that is kind of what we have to chalk up to the nature of the show, right? I mean, I'm certain that the team does that exact type of speculating that you mention here. And occasionally you get a little bit of it in the edits, right? But does it make for good television? I mean, I think it does. You think it does. In my mind, it lends to the credibility of the things that they actually find that are amazing, like this line of Versailles we're talking so much about. But it's painfully obvious after eight seasons of this that the producers have decided we're wrong. And we end up only getting the most fantastical of possibilities talked about or even being examined. Anyway, Peter, again, <laughs> if there was an award for the best email sent to this podcast, uh, especially one that includes attachments, you win, my friend. Okay, so let's get to our review of episode five from season eight of The Curse of Oak Island. It was called The Master Plan. This episode was another of these theorist episodes I love so much. I was really hoping we'd get a lot of these this year, especially with the changes to the uh, hunt, and it seems like we are. Uh, this is one of those episodes where they focus mostly on information brought to them in the war room by a researcher or an author, and then set out on, you know, kind of investigating these places that these uh, theorists offer to them. Now, we'll get to that in just a bit, but there were a few other stops along the way, so let's uh, first head over to the Money Pit area. Um, this episode actually opens at this most famous of Oak Island locations, showing us the arrival of truckloads of equipment being brought onto the island by Choice Sonic Drilling. This company's Canadian folks, so there's no need to worry about quarantining and the like. Uh, side note here, I, I, I've said this before, I really believe that the Oak Island fandom in general needs to get past these questions about quarantining and all that. And folks, we need to get past the questions about Dave Blankenship. Okay? We all know he retired from the show. Anyway, I digress. Uh, what we're seeing here is the beginning of uh, this new drilling program they're enacting for this year. Terry Matheson described it as a, quote, tightly spaced drill holes to help us map the money pit. Later on in the show, in a hole they label, I think, X6, is what they said. Uh, we hear talk about a potential seven-foot void underground at depth of below 200 feet. It turns out to be nothing. Now, for those of us who uh, complain that we never get to see failures and disappointments, well, here you go. That's one right there. Now, before we move on to this week's theory session, let's make a stop over at the Swamp, the place where Marty Lagina uh, has identified as the most interesting for the 2020 dig season. Today, we're looking at what last week I called the Western Target. Remember that theory uh, that we were talking about before with uh, Chris Morford and Corey and Maul from last week, the one we just talked about extensively uh, in the email section of the podcast. Well, this line from Versailles to Nolan's Cross led the theorists to identify two targets, one on each side of the swamp. The team examined them both last week briefly, and this Western one was certainly the more intriguing of the two. It's a ditch or a trench with a small hill on one side of it. I, from my orientation, it's either on the northern side or the eastern side of it. It's hard to tell from the orientation they're giving us here. But uh, Marty said he felt that this hill was where the earth being dug out of the ditch was deposited. He, called, he said that's where they dumped the spoils, you know. So the team is here to dig into this hill to see what might have been dug out. 
Billy is at the wheel of the excavator, and, and as he's digging the swamp doctor, Ian Spooner says it is, quote-unquote, disturbed material, meaning Marty's hunch was probably correct. After some further digging, Spooner says they've gone, quote, down to the surface underneath, which this was piled on top of, end quote. Now, my initial response here is this is not the work of a depositor, but of a searcher, right? We know of Fred Nolan, who did plenty of searching around the swamp. But other than him, there's precious little documentation of anyone else really searching the swamp before Nolan's time on the island. However, folks, please keep in mind, that does not by any means say that no one else has ever dug or searched over here before. It only means that no one ever documented that search. We have plenty of evidence now that a whole lot of searching was done on Oak Island, which we don't really know about. <laughs> you know, there isn't a lot of uh, documentation. So don't let the lack of documentation sway you into believing that this can only be or uh, that this can't be searcher in origin, that it must be, you know, depositor in origin. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means we don't know that somebody searched over here why or when because nobody wrote it down. They begin to find a bunch of rocks. And now at first, Spooner calls it the original lair, in quotes, which to me implied for a second there that it, he was looking at what he thought was the surface underneath whatever work was being done here. But then Rick kind of jumps in and says that the rocks look hand-fit, meaning kind of placed together like you would place together sort of a rock wall, right, to form a structure of some kind. Spooner then begins, to, I guess, agrees with them and then begins to equate what they're finding here with the paved structure found last season in the swamp. This then kind of turns this discussion on its ear a bit. And I think this is the result of both the editing and the narration. Now, the narrator clearly wants to build some real connection between whatever this is and the paved structure. But I'm not so sure the team, you know, down here in the mud, is really convinced of that at this point. Not from the little bits we're getting here. Spooner suggests maybe this was just people tossing rocks into a pile as they dug this trench. Now, if you pile rocks on top of each other, they're going to kind of naturally fit into place and end up looking a little hand, you know, a little hand fit. Uh, and then Spooner seems to suggest that they have found the quote unquote edge of whatever this is. Now, this idea seems reinforced a few seconds later with the Swamp Doctor openly perplexed about what this trench and rock hill could have been made for. So it seems he's not leaning toward it being a continuation of the paved structure, right? But again, I'm kind of reading the tea leaves here a bit. He says this is, quote, not an everyday activity, end quote, digging a long trench. That it's not, quote, something a farmer would do, end quote. And then the discussion finally goes to really a very logical place. This possibly being the work of past searchers. Marty offers an incredibly logical opinion that if, let's say, Mole and Morford are correct here and someone was here looking in this spot for whatever they were looking for, without the help of something like um, that magical GPS staff that Steve Guptill wields around, this is what you would do. You'd get kind of a ballpark of where you want to dig, and then you'd dig out a long trench trying to find a spot. Now, I said before something like Marty offers an incredibly logical opinion, not because I don't think he has them, but because they no things like this usually don't get on the show, right? We're complaining about this, and here, here's another example. Doug Kroll then chimes in that, quote, the treasure hunt has been, that perhaps the treasure hunt has been going on a lot longer than we have imagined. I would hope, and maybe I'm completely off the mark here, but I would hope 
that someone would really comb through Fred Nolan's records to find anything that hints at some kind of search over here in this area. Either way, the visuals we got in all this were just way too subtle for me to make any kind of real hard judgment on what we could be looking at here. It seems promising. Uh, seems that it'll tell a story. I don't think it means there's going to be a treasure here, but it's going to tell something of a story of what might have gone on. But that's about the best I can say at this point. And then they all kind of look at each other and weirdly decide that they're done here. <laughs> I have no idea why they did that. Uh, there's clearly more to learn, but I guess they decided their work was finished for the day. Okay, we move now into the war room for another theorist session, or what my wife used to call a crackpot session. <laughs> Here the team is joined via conference call by Aaron Helton of a company called Resource, Resource Data Incorporated. They are essentially a data consulting company that originated in Alaska, now has offices in a few locations in the lower 48 as well. They specialize in what is called GIS, and she says this a couple of times, a geographic information systems, and that is uh, Aaron Helton's field of expertise. So what is GIS? Well, the best way I can define it is that GIS is a fancy word for collecting and analyzing and essentially mapping geographical data. It can be used for all sorts of things, like analyzing water usage in an area or the placement of natural resources. Jeez, I mean, even traffic patterns. It's basically fitting data on a map so you can get it sort of a geographical perspective of whatever it is you're analyzing. I mean, you know, they do it for voting habits and that kind of stuff. The theory Helton is presenting here revolves around a map discovered by the late Oak Island author and theorist Zena Halpern. The show has talked a lot about Zena and her famous map, um, many, many times over the years. Her book, The Templar Mission to Oak Island and Beyond, is one of the more popular theory-based Oak Island books available today, and obviously fans of the show know the connection that Rick Lagina had to Zena, a really, really nice friendship. Zena believed this was a genuine map that she had found, created in 1347 by people with, now, I think the way she says it, is people with knowledge of a Templar voyage to Oak Island earlier. I'll put the map on our Facebook page, um, and I'll put the version that you see on the show here, since uh, thankfully they do the work of translating the old French for us. Uh, if you don't know about Halpern's theory, um, don't let me leave you with the impression here that it's all based on this one map that you're seeing here. It is a very layered theory with a lot of sources and uh, more than one supposedly old map and other sort of fascinating little tidbits of Templar-related stuff. If you're a fan of the Templar theory of Oak Island, really, this is the book for you. Zena Halpern, Zena with a Z. Um, however, having said all that, I really am with Marty Lagina when he says, and this is his quote, I have real problems with Zena's map, <laughs> end quote. It's, again, We've heard a couple of things out of Marty today. We're going to hear another one out of Alex in a bit um, that are really sort of keeping it real here, folks. We complain we don't get enough of this, but we got it a few times here today. I got to tell you, Marty, I do too. Um, but be that as it may, this is the map that Helton is using not only as a reference for her theory, theory but she's also clearly trying to, I guess, verify the map's accuracy. And one would assume, therefore, its authenticity, right? There, there are many points on the map, and Helton is focusing on what is labeled the anchors. Two points on the map, um, one on the southern end, just off the swamp, and the other on the northern shore off of 
just what is called the boulderless beach. I think they've, I've heard it used called the man-made beach too. Um, more on that in just a second on what the boulderless beach is. Helton then overlays some circles and lines and comes up with a target at the money pit where she believes this information tells her the treasure was buried. I have to say, folks, this all seems kind of arbitrary to me as I'm watching it and not very convincing. Uh, but as I say over and over again, this was probably a two-hour conversation cut into just a few minutes. So I'm not going to go too far down the skeptical road just yet. Well, maybe I'll take a few more steps down that road in, in just a second. Anyway, the team goes looking for what she called the West Anchor, but what I want to call the Southern Anchor because... That just computes in my mind as a better descriptive name here. Um, Steve Guptill takes the team to the exact coordinates she gave them. And lo and behold, they find a big white granite rock. And perhaps a slightly strange, uh, hard to really see on this, but he, they seem to be perplexed by this tiny round depression that he put his magical staff on. Um, again, I mean, this could be just... Uh, could be a result of the way it's shot or something, but I, I, all I saw was a little hole and a little bump there, which rocks are filled with that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, now there is a lot of talk about this rock being somehow distinctive or maybe being able to see it from the ocean as you're sailing in. But folks, right as Gary starts talking about how you would have seen it from the ocean, Freeze the frame on your on your television as the camera looks out to see. It's right around in the 44-minute mark. And in this shot, which I'm going to post this on the Facebook page, uh, you see three huge white granite rocks on the beach. Look just like this. One's really big. And perhaps even a fourth one right there in, in the front of the frame. Uh, I mean, come on. Now, Alex, like I said, who does certainly seem to share his father's healthy skepticism, makes a very logical observation here that the rock only makes sense if the one on the other side, on the northern side, is the same or at least similar. So off they go to the boulderless beach. Okay, let me fill this in a bit for you here now. Almost the entire shoreline of Oak Island is covered in with really big boulders. There's no sandy beach on Oak Island, and anybody who's been really north of the Kennebunk area in Maine will see a very similar shoreline. It's a lot of boulders, a lot of big rocks, no sand at all, right? Like I said, this is a feature of the coastline really, you know, all the way up. But here, however, there are two spots on Oak Island where there are no such boulders, one is Smith's Cove. The other is called, creatively, the Boulderless Beach. It is a 100-foot-long section of shoreline on the north side of the island that is mysteriously devoid of these kind of big rocks. And that is where the team is going now to look for this northern anchor. And there's this really cool brief moment right after the commercial break when you get a good look at how weird this beach is, how the boulders just seem to end. Alex makes a little uh, mention of this. I'll try and screen capture that one, too, and post it on the Facebook page. Now, just off the beach, up along the rise, right, where, where the little hill there that's distinctive of a lot of these shorelines on Oak Island, um, we see tons of boulders. Again, showing just how weird this boulderless section really is, but Guptil takes the team to another of these big white granite rocks on which they find what they think might be a carving of some kind. It does look a little perplexing what this is. Um, Alex Lagina first says it's probably natural, but then he compares it with something called the boat stone. 
Okay, let's stop here and discuss the boat stone for just a moment. The boat stone was found by a road department in Westford, Massachusetts, which is just a few miles southeast of Lowell. In the ni- and they found- it was found in the 1920s. It depicts a sailing ship, which many have compared to a Viking ship, as well as a crossbow-looking thing and the numbers 184, which is weird if it's Viking because the Vikings didn't use those kind of numbers. Anyway, many experts, including Scott Walter, who many of you I'm sure have heard of, uh, say this is a very old carving. But no one knows exactly how old or who did it. Many of the folks who buy into these sorts of things try to link this boat stone and another equally strange stone carving found in the same town, which is called the Westford Knight. You can look that up uh, to the alleged voyage of the Scottish Prince Henry Sinclair, the Earl of Orkney, Lord of Roslyn in, if my memory serves, the late 14th century, right, right around the turn of the 14th to the 15th century. I think I'm right about that. Do a quick Google search, and you can find a good photo of the boat stone. The connection between this stone on Oak Island and the boat stone of Westford is, I don't know, weak at best, really. But again, that doesn't stop the narrator from his predictable nonsense of trying to get us all thinking about Sinclair and the Knights Templar. But then Alex comes back with a great thought when he says, quote, there is no way to know this from any other boulder on the beach There's got to be another way to identify it, end quote. Spot on. He's absolutely correct. And take a look at this aerial drone shot they do at the end here of the sequence. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of these stones just like this everywhere on this beach. And if this is a marker to see from the ocean, oh boy, man, it's not a very good one. We need to examine these, I think, and see if we can get any kind of data from them Let's hold on to that. I'm not so sure we're going to get it, but let's see. So my first thought, right, when watching Erin Helton present her theory was this. If you took Xena's map and then you looked at a LIDAR image uh, and that kind of data, maps and stuff of Oak Island, if what you wanted to do was find boulders that you could attach or assign to those labels on her map, that would be no problem at all. Because there are boulders literally all over Oak Island. You can't walk a few feet without hitting one. Also, let me add this. A big deal was made of how Guptil's gear brought them right to a boulder. But that is absolutely no surprise to me at all. Nor is it any confirmation of the theory's legitimacy that, you know, that he was able to do this. Folks, how do I explain this? Helton is looking at LIDAR data. She's looking at piles of maps. She's looking for boulders. She's giving Guptil coordinates to boulders that she sees on her map. Of course they found a boulder. Why would she lead them to something that didn't look like a boulder? That's exactly what she sent them to find. These are boulders that Helton had already identified as being present on the island. She wasn't, she wasn't, she, 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 There was no ambiguity there. She knew that that's what she was sending them to. It means nothing, absolutely nothing, other than Helton had a really good map and some good data to look at. What was really disappointing to me in all this was that, and what they should have focused on in my mind, really, was something we saw before we ever got to these anchor stones. Helton identified two other boulders, which she called 20A and 21A. Now, according to her hypothesis, according to her information here that she posits for us, uh, these two boulders would form an exact meridian, a quote-unquote exact meridian, basically an incredibly accurate 
true west-east line cutting, if I'm correct here, straight across the island, leading from Smith's Cove on the west right through the Caven Pit, right through the Money Pit area, and straight through the swamp all the way across to the western shoreline. Now, if we can verify that those boulders are placed or marked by humans, man, you really have something there, don't you? Obviously, somebody was doing something to try to make some marks and show us the orientation of what could be going on here. I hope we get to that again later in the season. But as I always like to tell you and always warn you, if we don't, well, we know why. Let me also say this before we wrap up here. Uh, I really took Aaron Helton's theory to task. And just because I took this theory apart a bit, it doesn't mean that I don't absolutely love this stuff, right? I love these theories, and I think she certainly has a lot, and I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt that she's got a lot more to this than what we saw. Um, I love these stories. I love examining them and really digging into these theories. This is what makes me want to do this podcast. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Diggin' Oak Island. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Um, it helps to get the word out on the show and brings more listeners to us. And, of course, we want that. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. Give us a like or a follow there. It would be much appreciated. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggin'oakisland at gmail.com. Don't forget, if you send me an email or a message, I might just answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the audience, just make a note of that for me, and uh, I'll just write you back via email. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.